All right, we're back. It is a rainy day, and this is right next to the The last rainy day. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully. All right, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about Dune today. Uh, Dune, you know, we've been kind of doing this book to movie adaptation series. It's been fun. Um, and Dune, we're going to kind of go off of our fantasy train, and we're going to we're going to talk about some science fiction. Yeah, but there's a lot of fantasy elements. There's a lot. There's a lot. Whereas most most fantasy or science fiction really focuses on technology, um, Dune really doesn't. The only technology they really talk about is the is their still suits. Yeah, it's it's science fiction in the sense that it is in the future. Yeah. But there's magic. There's yeah. straight up magic in it, right? And um, you know they're like. Paul is uh, prescient. You know he can he can see the future. Um, yep. He's and like Odin. He has magical powers to like break things with his voice, and, um, all sorts of stuff like that. But there's a lot of really cool ideas that are from science fiction in Dune that sort of inform the background, um, like the whole idea of you know robots being being human-like. Yeah, and taking over. Throw that. That's all in the background, yeah. but like it informs their culture, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the David Lynch movie, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they made they they did some newer stuff with Dune. Did they? Yeah, they, they came out with another Dune. I don't remember when it came out. Um, but I would prefer to focus on the David Lynch one because I think that's the most interesting one to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really liked the David Lynch movie and. When you when you hear him talk about it, he thinks it's the worst thing he ever did. Yeah, he considered it a colossal failure. Um, um, so if you get if you ever get the quote director's cut of Dune, it says directed by Alan Smith or Alan Smithy, right? Which is a uh, that's an old Hollywood name that you put on something that you didn't want to put your name. On. <laughs> so you put directed by Alan Smith, and uh, you just wouldn't put the, your actual director's name on it or produced by Alan Smith. Whatever, whatever you yeah, wanted. Whatever pseudonym you wanted. Uh, but yeah, Alan Smith was the... It was like the inside pseudonym for... This is bad enough that nobody wants to put their name on it. Yeah. Um, but you'd want to release it anyway because you want that money. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you put all this... Money. Yeah, you put all this investment into it, you want to at least try and recoup some of that. But honestly, so um, I watched, I watched. Yeah, the other pseudonym Dune. is J.J. Abrams. So sometimes people put J.J. Abrams on their live movies. <laughs> so they don't want to take credit for him. <laughs> Woo! All right, uh, Burn. Um, I watched, I watched the David Lynch uh, Dune movie probably. Six years ago now? Yeah. Six years ago. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. Um, of course, I read the book. I read I read the first three Dune books. I think I, I, think um, I stopped on... I stopped I on stopped, four. I think I stopped after four. I think really? I read four and like got to the end and I was like, I, I think I think this series is through with me. Like, yeah. I'm not through with it, but it's definitely through with me. <laughs> yeah, I just... I, I read the first... Probably, probably the first two chapters of... I think it's Chapter House Dune. No, that's the last one. Chapter of Students, the last one. Uh, I think God Emperor Dune was the God last Emperor, one. yeah. God Emperor. I read like the first two chapters and he just said, no, no, I don't think so. It has kind of a cool ending, but it's like I just, uh, I'm I, like reading about this sandworm king and 
it's like, what am I reading? No, I just, <laughs> I just wasn't interested in it because, honestly, they, they kill all the, I mean, well, they don't kill them, but enough time passes that all the characters that I, that I liked in the first book are just not there anymore. Unless it's like Duncan Idaho's clone, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, I mean, I guess is cool, uh, but... But why? It's like, oh, it's his clone. It's just like him. You well, liked him. It's you like, liked him, so he's back. But I don't think clones work that way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's the same person. Yeah. Um, so we had... That was what that was really what ruined the book the book series for me was, um, and I think this is this is a huge trend in modern fiction, uh, fantasy and science fiction, is that people connect to the characters. So if you kill those characters, why? I, I just you're not connected to the story the rest of the way. Through. Yeah, and it's funny because like the other thing that I, I I know we haven't gotten to talk about we're not getting to the movie just yet, but yeah. we'll, we'll talk whatever. <laughs> So whatever. The, Writers the, of the Dawn, we never the, know what you're gonna yeah, get. The other thing that I didn't end up liking about the books, I got really bored of the desert setting, man. I got oh, yeah. really bored of everything being about this planet in June. Uh, because they you know, it's like you got in the beginning of the first book, you got this exposure to this other planet with water, and it's like I wanna know what these other planets are like. And uh, well, and in the in the books, you do explore other planets, just not with the main characters. Yeah, um, yeah. I so know. there's like an all rock planet that has like uh, it's like like a volcano planet, basically. Well, I was gonna say Brian J. Anderson and uh, Brian Herbert. No, yeah. Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert. There you go. They uh, Kevin J. Anderson's like the real author there. Kevin J. Anderson, if you don't know who he is. Basically, he writes other people's books. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess he's pretty good at it. I'm not crazy about his style. But, like, he wrote Neil Peart's book, Clockwork Angels. Like, he, you know, basically, if, if somebody has a story and a name to sell, he'll write the, the novel. Yeah. Uh, he's good at it. So he wrote, they wrote a bunch of, uh, like, Dune books. He also wrote a bunch of Star Wars books. Too. Yeah, he wrote a bunch of Star Wars books. Some of them were very well liked. Some of them not as much. But... Uh, he's written in other people's IPs and he has his own IPs too uh, but the thing is like he him and Brian Herbert wrote these books that were way more what people kind of wanted from Dune which was like you know we want to know about this other house and we yeah. don't you know it was like it was uh, much more expansive stories as far as that's concerned yeah God, I think there's like 24 Dune books is there? no I have so lost many. track but but him and Brian, Brian Herbert and, and Kevin J. Anderson wrote quite a few. And they I haven't actually read any of them, but people like them, I think. Yeah. So, the movie. The movie, yeah. The movie. I don't consider the movie a failure. Not the no, director's I, cut. I, I really like the movie. But again, director's cut, that's just the one that I've seen. So, And it was long. I, I feel like it was... It's almost four hours. Is it really? Yeah, it's oh, long. It's, it's long. But, I mean, to really and, do a book justice, that's what you need. Yeah, but the funny thing is, is the the, the non-director's cut has David Lynch's name on it. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't which is that. weird. Yeah. So, like, the full version that is his director's cut, he doesn't put his name on. But the smaller version, his name is on it. I don't know. It's confusing. And, and I think David Lynch has such a weird sense of aesthetics that when he creates a successful adaptation of a book, 
And it, honestly, I think it's actually the director's cut's a pretty faithful adaptation. It really is. And it's got a lot of imagination to it. It's visually very exciting. That when he created that, it didn't match his own aesthetics. And <laughs> yeah. so he didn't like it, even though it was like aesthetically true to the source. It really was. He didn't like the... Unlike The Hobbit. Unlike... Well, The Hobbit was a... Well, mm. it was aesthetically... Mm. Nah, I, uh, visuals are only part of the aesthetics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway. I can see that. I can see that. So, like... You know, the, the, the movie played like a regular old movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, and plus, Lynch doesn't play. And plus movies. you had Patrick Stewart playing um, the Mentat. No, no, no. Mentat was the guy from Quantum Leap, the oh. Ziggy guy. Who yeah, was, that was the was Mentat. Patrick Stewart? Patrick Stewart was, which one was he? Well, he played, the, he played the... Yeah, he was Duncan. He played the... Uh, he, he played a Chapman stick. Yeah, a Chapman stick, and the, they called it something really cool. They called it whatever the, the crazy loot that they yeah. invented in the book is. So he, they have him playing Chapman stick, and that's one of the first... That's one of the first places people get uh, get exposed to Chapman stick. If you don't know what Chapman stick is, like... I don't know, go, go watch some videos. Chapman, Chapman stick, stick is go, really cool. You know, um, there's a bunch of great Chapman stick players, and uh, it's a really cool instrument. So we have, uh, yeah, I think it is Duncan, who's yeah. played by Patrick Stewart, and he looks the same as he always has. He does. The guy never ages. Ages only slowly, like a wizard. Like a wizard. I, yeah. <laughs> so that was awesome. That was, and as a as a Star Trek fan, and of course, this movie came out before Star Trek, so this is like you know me looking into the past of of this actor that I like. It's fun to see him in more science fiction before he was in the biggest science fiction IP out there. So, uh, the so when we're when we're cross-referencing between the book and the movie, same setting looks really really nice. A couple of things that they added in the movie that I thought were a really nice visual touch in the director's cut again is the the on the. The on-ship scenes where you get to see these this crazy alien monster who is, oh, yeah, is the, part uh, of the guild. Yeah, the Spacer's that, Guild. That was a really cool imagining. Yeah. Of the Spacer's Guild. And uh, this this weird alien monster takes the spice that they only get from Dune and eats it, and it basically gives him magic powers. Yeah, that's, um, that's it. And oh, that's I, where the magic is. I just want to correct. The guy from Quantum Leap is actually the doctor, not the trying to remember who but anyway, yeah. So uh, that now that visual is actually taken from the second book. Right. Yeah. It's... That's taken from uh, Doom Asylum, uh, where they're like the the Empress is sitting around with all these people. They're going to conspire to like kill Paul. And uh, the uh, you finally that's the first time you actually see someone from the Spacers Guild, and he's like floating in a tank eating like little yeah eating like little spice little, pellets or something constantly eating spice pellets. And the idea of like the of this space and guilt. It's like for 5,000 years or something. They've been eating this spice and evolving with this spice so that their their yeah. intellect and their brain is so extended and so vast that they can hold space. And that's yeah. the way they trap. Yeah, because they, they still want to get around this idea of relativity where it would take, you know, thousands and thousands of years to get from one end of the galaxy to the other. Yeah, so rather than rather than looking like, well, how do you travel faster? It's like folding a piece of paper. 
fold the piece of paper so that the opposite ends are right next to each other. Then you only have to travel a short distance. Yeah. That was the idea behind their, their space travel. And there's a great little scene in the uh, in the movie where you can see this guys from the Spacers Guild looking like they're like floating through space as they like I don't know magically wrap the the spaceship and, and bring it to the to the new planet. It's very it's yeah. very interesting visuals. I, I overall I I really like the visuals. One thing that I, I really enjoyed about the movie as a as a modern cinema goer, I, I just feel like you missed this, is that there's a scene where Paul is leading um, is leading the, the the Dune men. I can't remember the names. Fremen. The Fremen. He's leading the Fremen in a charge against uh, against the guy who's trying to trying to take them over. And over this sand dune comes. Hundreds of actors, real yes. life actors, <laughs> yeah, climbing over this. Oh, that's, dude. They're, yeah, they're attacking like this, the the spice harvest, mm -hmm. and that's where they like reunite. Yeah, um, I thought that was really cool because today it's just like it's the it's the main actor leading the charge with the hundreds of C CG. CGI. Yeah, just following him from behind. Um, and, you know, it really does lose something. Or, or they take an actor and they use the computer to like just multiply. Yeah, to just multiply. Multiply the the crowd to make it look huge, which, yeah, whatever, you know. But it was cool. It was cool to see like a bunch of extras all in their costumes. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know that they spent a lot of money making Od that movie. Oddly enough, the still suits were not what I envisioned when I read the book. They Me really either. Worked. But they, I really thought that they worked. Yeah, I thought they worked. Uh, they just were like very different. And this is this is again a thing moving from book to, to cinema is you want to make the actors look really attractive. So the still suits were really form fitting. And uh, yeah, I imagine in the book that they were more. Yeah, I imagine they were much more like you would see someone who lives in the desert. You know, very loose fitting with uh, maybe contraptions underneath that. But like you want to, you wanted to let that breeze move through you a little more. Um, but it makes sense if you're trying to really wick all the moisture away from your body and, and to be able to reuse it that it would be really tight against your skin because you wouldn't want in that case you wouldn't want evaporation stealing moisture yeah um, there's a great scene again we we're talking about the Chapman stick scene toward the beginning where one of the Fremen spits on the ground and all of the all of these people from they're not from the Spacers Guild tonight but they're from the Empire uh, and Leto and Paul are part of this uh, he spits on the ground and they take it as an insult and and someone jumps in and says no 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 you gotta understand how important moisture is to these people and so giving up your moisture it's like a sign of respect it's a sign of respect yeah um, and, and and I gotta hand it to, uh, to Frank Herbert for taking what he did was he took a couple of set of circumstances and then created a culture and a setup out of them that was like a natural next step so, as the background of Dune, you know, they overthrew these robot overlord type people. That yeah. We're originally seeing to their every need, you know, and making people lazy and dumb. Um, and that happens like, you know, 12,000 years in the past or something. Right. So, we're, the culture is well past that, but it's still. But it's still. Informed it, by it has created, you know, there's this orange Catholic Bible. They created a religious set of 
of uh, dictums, or you know, they've created a religious set of, of rules around this. That you're not going to make a machine in the image of a man, both in their mind and in their body form. Then the mind is more important because that's where you have mintats. Mintats are these human calculators. So that rather than having a computer do complex thinking tasks, we have specially trained, specially developed people called mintats that do it. And that's a really cool idea. And you know, rather than having computerized space travel, you have the spacer skill that, that does it. It all revolves around the use of this like magical spice. And so you can see the evolution of where, whereas more, most science fiction is focused on the technology, the technology actually informs this, the setting as to why they have they had to find and, this magic. And ma yeah, the magical solution to yeah. like the problem of not having highly, highly, you know, AI and highly evolved computers to, yeah. to do a lot of thinking for people. It's um, it's really interesting, and I I haven't really seen it in science fiction since then. Um, yeah, I think it informs a lot of derivative science fiction. You, know, you have even Star Wars as like the Force, you know, has this uh, has this magical element to it that kind of goes with the technology and places the technology and use of this duality, this sort of competition between this natural force and then this unnatural computer technology. You even have that in like the climax of Star Wars where. It's like, Luke, you've turned your computer off. And he's like, it's fine, I'm using the force. Right? Uh, so I think it informs a lot of a lot of derivative works. And by the way, whenever you call Star Wars derivative, people get upset for some reason. I don't know why. Star Wars wasn't the first science fiction-y universe ever made. Yeah, it wasn't well. the first one to use magic. It wasn't the first one. Like, I don't, I don't know. Star, Star Wars fans have threatened to kill me because I didn't like the last Star Wars movie. So, <laughs> so look at it that way. Yeah. Well, and that's that's something interesting. Is when you when you're talking about about science fiction specifically has so many subgenres um, because of how intense you can get with the actual science. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're talking about hard hard sci-fi, it's like you, you need to have graduated from MIT to understand yeah, I, what's happening. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. He wrote a book called Ringworld, which I which I really liked. And he actually revised it based on readers going, "Hey, you messed up on this little piece of the science," <laughs> and so he revised the book to fix what he got wrong. With like, oh, this would happen in, if you had this Ringworld. This is the thing that would happen because you would end up with this centripetal force thing. It's like, oh, okay. And so he fits, he like revised yeah. it and fits the sort cool. of tiny little things that readers pointed out. You know, that's a that's a cool idea. Dude is not hard sci-fi. No, not at all. Not even close. Not even close, yeah. But it's it's like science it. fantasy. Just like Star Wars. But so science Go back to the movie. The movie, at least the director's cut, I felt like had a really good structure to it. Uh, and the pacing was really good. Yeah, I really uh, liked the pacing. For a four everything, hour had movie. Enough, everything had enough time to develop. It's because yeah. there's so many ideas in there. Yeah. When you see the two hour version, there's not enough time to explore the ideas at all. Yeah. Uh, so the first, pacing just was really bad. Yeah, that first book was really packed with crazy ideas. As and they had that big preamble explaining the background, which I think yeah. was really, really helpful for me. Because it's that's dropped in throughout the book, but that's really hard to do in a movie setting. Yeah. It's really hard to like drop drop in clues about the setting that you're experiencing. Uh, and 
And they did this in Lord of the Rings too, the movies. At the beginning, they just sort of explained, right? And they had this scene with like Sauron like fighting people. And, yeah. and the Isildur taking the ring. Uh, because that's explained through dialogue and stuff in the book. But that's hard to do in a movie. So you do it as just some exposition right at the beginning of the movie and then begin the story. And it works because the exposition itself was interesting as it wasn't good. Which didn't work in The Hobbit because we already knew all the exposition that they were trying to do. Yeah, and the Ho actually The Hobbit required no exposition. Yeah. The exposition would be, Hobbit, here's Hobbits. They're short and they have hairy feet. Yeah. Let's go on an adventure. The Hobbit was exposition. I feel like we're going to keep coming back to The Hobbit and how bad it was. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's... Uh, we haven't really... I mean... So, what was, what was Paul's mother's name? Anyway, she's a main, she's a ma major character, and when she and Paul escape into the desert, um, she goes from from like leader mentor to Paul to suddenly like like she takes a really big back step as Paul becomes this this fully formed character that is going to eventually lead the Fremen into overthrowing this. This empire that's uh, that's stealing that's stealing their natural resources, destroying their culture. Yeah. Um, and you see the two of them kind of traveling through these uh, these like underground water uh, water wells, so to speak. As you know, meeting the Fremen, you know, passing them by, meeting different factions, understanding how they live their life. Um, understanding more and more about their culture. I think at one point you witness a birth. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so she, she gives birth to Paul's, like, premature sister who's, like, spicy. Oh, that's Cause right. Because remember, they fear the blood oh. of the, like, sandworm. Uh -huh. To give her, like, ultra prescience and make her, like, a reverend mother. It's, like, it's yeah. really cool. But you can't get all of those little things in a two-and-a-half-hour movie. That I, I really recommend the director Scott for that. Yeah. I loved, uh, by the way, in the movie, I loved the visuals of Harpony. The... The main bad guy in his little floaty suspenders, who's just like uh, covered yeah. with disgusting boils. They made him so atrociously disgusting. Yeah, it's just perfect. You know, it's just like a perfect version of that. And but then you have his like either son or nephew that's played by Sting, and he's very very attractive. Mm -hmm. No homo. No. <laughs> what? He, he looks great. You he know, does. they have him. They have these like shirtless scenes with him, and it's like Sting looks great. And well, Har uh, his son becomes the enemy in, in subsequent books. Yeah. So it's nice to see. You know, it's like you see Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars, Star Wars: A New Hope. Well, no, actually, you don't. But in, no, you don't. <laughs> no, forget that. that. Forget that. I forget, forget that that, that happens. Yeah, that um, doesn't happen. I don't um, know what you're talking about. Yeah, I hear they're gonna make a they're gonna make a fourth Indiana Jones movie. Maybe it'll be good. Oh, oh, wait. <laughs> okay. I got you. <laughs> see what I did there? Yeah. Um, so it's it's really cool to see this horrendous being that you're you're like, obviously this is the bad guy. I want him to die. And then if they had if they had gone on and made more uh, Dune movies, you had this built-in charismatic evil, which is even cooler. Um, yeah. It's like going from, it's going from chaotic evil to like lawful evil yeah. in a really cool way. Um, whereas I think I think lawful evil characters are a lot scarier um, than chaotic evil characters. Um, 
It's like... Uh, they're more interesting. They're way more interesting. Because they have real motivation. Yeah. And they have like real... I don't know. They have a system of thought that is coherent. That yeah. To me, makes it more interesting. It's like, com- it's like comparing the Joker, who's a chaotic evil character, to gentleman John Marconi in The Dresden Files, who's a, who's a gangster and is not in trouble with the law, but everyone knows how evil he is. Those those characters are just so much more interesting, especially because in some cases the the protagonist has to work with them uh, towards the towards like Jabba the Hutt, like Jabba the Hutt. Whew. And and really the the Empire is lawful evil, yeah. fully lawful evil, which is great. Um, so there's now I kind of the visuals I think are good. The sound rooms look good. Most of the visual effects are really great, especially for the time. The one exception is they they had this, you know, these shields that they could turn on mm-hmm. to fight. I mean, they do like their knife fights and stuff. Oh, and yeah. uh, these those are from the seventies, and they look bad. They look bad. Yeah. But you know what? You honestly you forgive it because the sets are so detailed. The sets look so good. They really are. They're just so. You are so immersed in that world when you watch that movie, um, which you. You know, when you read the book, you're very immersed in the world. But man, you see those visuals, and it's it's really like bringing to life. Yeah, nowadays I feel like there's just not as much effort put into sets there's as not. it was. And just it's a feeling like the sets. There's a lot of good sets, but but most of the sets that, are happen on a computer. Yeah, a lot That's of them are. Like. They fill in all the background. You know, there's not like a big room. Um, so yeah, overall, I I. I I like the movie a lot. I recommend the director's cut. When you get to the end of the director's cut, it really feels like Paul has arrived to his greatness. It's a great hero's journey. And a hero's journey that is atypical in that um, Paul's virtue is different than what you might expect from a regular hero. I like I appreciate that a lot, too. But I think we're out of time. Yep. So uh, we'll see you next time. This has been Riders of the Dawn. Uh, you can find me at dbspress.com and davidbustores.com. And you can find me at matthewjwellman.com. We'll see you next time.